Welcome, everybody, to the Tag Your It Podcast. I'm Ray Ray. And I'm David Van Bever. And, man, it has been a while since we have done this. A lot um, of things have been in the way. Yeah, two two weeks. Yeah. I think I was here two weeks ago. Yeah, I it feels yeah. like a long time. I know, it does. It happens sometimes. Two weeks goes quick, two weeks goes slow. Yeah. It's gone quick, but it feels like a long time ago. Yeah. But yeah. there you go. It's, it's good. We were at an associational meeting last night. Mm-hmm. We got to do that thing, so it was really awesome. So uh, what happened is last Monday, I was not feeling so well. So I was like, Dave, we can't do this. I'm feeling bad. I might be able to do something later, but we ended up calling it. And it was actually a good thing because... I had forgotten that I was invited to speak at another associational meeting. Mm -hmm. So I jumped in the car and got down there and spoke and talked about the Missouri Baptist resolution to abolish abortion. Yes, which is steaming forward with some good news. So we've got we've got a lot of financial support as far as it goes with the materials we're wanting to hand out. Um, and then these associational meetings that we had gone to, I went to one of them uh, yesterday. Um, and that was the Ozark Prairie Baptist Association. Yes, and uh, we met in, met in Sheldon, Missouri. And that was a really good time. And so it was really awesome that, you know, Dave got to speak. And then I got to do a little bit more of the scriptural speaking. And then Dave took over with the uh, the official Functional business. Thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was a really good time. And it was a really good time to end up talking to people, especially whenever they're like, where'd you come from? I've never heard this before. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the going story is, you know, people aren't, you know, you're, you're paying attention to Biden and all this stuff on the news on everything else. But whenever he said, oh, we're, we're going to try to codify Roe versus Wade, it's like, oh, so it's not law. It's never been law. States could have defied this from the very beginning. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, well, you know <laughs> so, my favorite thing, I shared yeah. it on our chat group, but I'll share it here. Last night after we spoke, you know, we had a table there um, right next to the Missouri Baptist Convention, by the way, which was great, and the Missouri Baptist Disaster Relief. Mm-hmm. And a lady came up to me, and she was a nurse, had been a nurse for quite some time. She looked like she was old enough to be my mom. And she gave me a hug and said, I'm so glad you guys are here. I never heard about this. Yeah. And then she talked about the heartbeat bill. And she said... I've been in nursing enough to know I could check your heartbeat and not find it if I wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. She said, and no one is doing anything for those babies. Yeah. And I had mentioned, yeah. And it's one thing that I had written down. And, um, what I had said is like, whenever we think about, uh, the celebrations that happen with the pro-life industry is they'll celebrate their incremental, um, you know, success or whatever, but you never hear them going, but we mourn for the kids that we are not protecting. They're just, they're too busy over here. Like, yay, we got the heartbeat bill. But what about all the babies that we know as Christians are still human beings made in the image of God that are still getting slaughtered because of yay, the heartbeat bill, you know? And so we don't, we hear maybe, maybe a whisper out of some people. I'm not Mm going to say that nobody mourns, but there is not a mourning 
you know, like we have made it to the heartbeat bill, yet we still mourn. You don't hear that. You just hear the celebration. Hey, we're ending abortion. We're ending abortion. No, you're not. God can definitely. The abortion is not ended until your state says with no exceptions, no compromise. If they jump ship to another state, if they come back, they come back as a murderer. murderer. Yep. That's the only way. Um, so that's, that's, that's the thing. So people well, are picking know. up on this. People are understanding it. It's not like it's hard to understand. It's like so easy that if you're suppressing the truth, it's so easy to do that as well. well. I will predict this again, which I did not have an opportunity to deal with this last year, but I predict again, when we put it forward, that someone will say, well, what's this equal justice under the law? You are going to punish women. They're victims yeah. to which I will be glad to say, what about the murder of the baby? What you just said there was if a woman feels like she's a victim, then she has a right to murder a human being. Don't say out of one side of your mouth, you believe when you believe that the preborn are image bearers and out of the other side of your mouth say, but it's cool if the mom feels like she's a victim that she should murder, have the right to murder her baby. How dare you say such a thing? So it's okay for women to murder babies if they feel like they're victims. By what standard are they victims? Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those things that you can say, well, the whole like robber getting into your house. Well, the thing is, is in that situation, I didn't invite the robber into my house to then shoot him. So I, at that point I am a victim and I can stand my ground at night to protect my family. Uh, but you, we know the science behind how to make babies. And uh, you invited what you don't want into your body by doing that, and then you kill it. So you said, here, robber, I've got stuff. Take it. Bam. That's what she did. Yes. So, you know, but, you know, we must digress a little bit because we are, yeah, um, are going to be talking about, about something a little bit. But we wanted to update you on what's going on because even though um, we haven't been so active in this podcast department or on YouTube or whatever, we have been active. There's a lot of stuff going on um, besides feeling sick. Wasn't COVID. So things other than COVID still exist, which is amazing. It's and funny because I, I got rejoicing. sick on Tuesday and Wednesday last week too. Oh, crazy. So, yeah. And it wasn't so, COVID either. It yeah, passed. So that's so. the cool thing. So yeah, by, you know, Monday morning at three o'clock, I woke up in my own sweat, breaking a fever and that was great. And then I slowly have gotten better. And so I knew I wasn't, uh, contagious anymore because i broke that fever it was all good and i you know i got to work and all that kind of stuff so it's awesome how the body works amen so amen. You know, god has uh, fearfully and wonderfully made me so, well today yeah. we will not be dealing with abortion but we will deal with a local issue that we have dealt again. with before again philip wright yeah. over at the venues who refuses to engage once again refuses to have any type of meaningful dialogue. And then if he does dialogue, as Adam saw Apparently, on Facebook, yeah. he deletes it. What he, he deletes what he says. Deletes some incriminating evidence. So um, there was a uh, a sermon that happened a couple of weeks ago now. I think it was September 5th is when it was on. Um, I was alerted to it by a fellow church member of mine because um, he was kind of, he added some comments um, on it. And then I was wanting to see what the context was he was commenting on because he's asking me questions like how, you know, how should I go about answering this and what is he talking about and all that. So I checked it out and then, you know, me, I get on there. I just, I start saying some stuff. And so, um, you know, I put a summation of the sermon, which is basically I'm going to appeal to certain passages of scripture as if they are authoritative and inerrant to show you that it, 
the whole of the scriptures is not authoritative or inerrant. I asked him the question, how do you know Christ is in you? He never actually answered the questions. He did say it's, you can't find it anymore, but he did say that the scriptures are a part of his knowing, but somehow that got deleted. I don't know why that was incriminating enough for him to um, delete. And there was a few other things, but I kept on pointing out, you go to these certain little passages the Christ, especially the Christ in you. I know that Christ is in me because this scripture says that Christ is in me. Which, if he was being consistently Christian, when you ask him, how do you know that the Spirit of Christ is in you, he could have went to Galatians 5, 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the yeah. desire of the flesh. I don't desire the gratif- yeah. to gratify the, I do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Or how about the fruit of the Spirit? Yeah. Well, I know that I'm saved because the fruit of the Spirit is evident in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness requires a standard, too. So then you got to go by what oh, yeah. standard there. Um, but, you know, so I asked, you know, I was asking questions like, how do you know? Never got around to that. Um, I kept on going, but you're pointing to these things as though they are authoritative and errant. Um, he says, I never said those words. I never used authoritative or inerrant. And I'm like, but you're doing it. And so if they are inerrant, I said, you can't know because of the scriptures. Cause I got him to say, well, I know because of that. It says it in the scriptures. He then backpedaled to say, well, because you use them as an ultimate authority, that's why I'm talking to you using the scriptures. And I'm like, that's not telling me how, you know, though, that's the problem. Um, he's just, it just ended up backpedaling. That's probably why it's not right. on there anymore because he was challenged and it's, out there for everybody to see if he leaves it. Um, my replies and stuff are still out there, but it doesn't make sense anymore because he took out his context. Um, but that's just kind of the, the going storyline um, behind my interaction with Philip. Again, um, he refuses to have public discussion, puts this stuff out there for everybody to hear and see. And you'd think that somebody that uh, had a heart for the truth would be more than willing to sit down in front of a bunch of people, you know, a part of his journey, as he would say, and be like, well, let's, let's, let's challenge my journey. Maybe I am wrong. And he will admit that in some of his, maybe I am wrong. And so that's, that's an honest admission, but okay. Act humble then instead of closing One off. One of the and things that he talks about at the end discussion. of this sermon is he says that you should have conversations with people and you should listen to people. Right. In fact, he says he gives four things right at the end. Right. Saying uh, very, very. You, we have a responsibility mm-hmm. to listen to people. Yeah. Where is this engagement and demonstration of that responsibility to people that get would to say the oppose end, him. when we get to the end of this, which will probably be a two part podcast. Yeah. So we definitely want to deal with this. In. So here's one of the things that we want to say, too, because I think this is incredibly important to why we're doing this. This is not to pick on Phil Wright. The reality is we have a teacher of a large church, well, a large group of people that call themselves Christians here in Springfield that are puppeting what he says. So people in Springfield and in this area do have many times they're going to run into these folks. Mm -hmm. And so here is why it's important that we deal with a false teacher who needs to repent and quit calling himself a Christian and quit misleading people for his own good. He needs to repent because there are consequences. He is held to a higher standard and he's misleading multiple people who are in turn 
misleading other people right here in the area. We focus on things that are close to us in context. And that's why this is an important thing for us. And that's why we're doing it. And we, again, Phil, anyone involved in the venues, come on the program, Mm -hmm. come on the program and engage us. Come on and talk to us. Tell us what we've had. Many people look at our interaction with T jump. Look at our interaction with anyone who has held a different position and see how we deal with them and see how we speak with them respectfully and treat them kindly and cordially and come on. Yeah, that's the big thing. Let's not relegate this to uh, you and me at a coffee shop. We've done that already. It didn't amount to anything other than just... You demonstrated you don't know church history. Yeah. And well, in the, in the coffee shop interaction, it was just a coffee shop interaction to be like, well, the thing is, is Phil never watched what we said. So he believed his people in church that did watch it. And they said that we were being mean. So he didn't even cross check his own people. Maybe we could have been nice in that. Maybe I don't, Phil doesn't know, but he ended up accusing us of being mean and that's why he wouldn't watch it. And so he, again, he demonstrates that he doesn't want to deal. And so he'll take you into a coffee shop and ask you to stop. He just wants to silence you. He doesn't want you to, he doesn't want to be challenged. And so the reason why he doesn't like what we do is because we are holding him accountable and we're asking probing questions that he will not answer publicly or else it would destroy everything that the venues is about. And and it'll destroy the people even more instead because he, he won't go the other way of giving them the complete revealed gospel that we can absolutely know. That's right. So with that said, um, we're going to, like I said, strap in. Um, This will be a two-part series. So at some point you'll see this fade out. It'll be up, you know, the next time we upload stuff, but we want to give you guys chunks to chew on. um, And without just giving you the whole shebang, chew on it, come back to the, whenever we uh, start up part two and then, um, you know, finish it off. So um, I think that's the best way to attack this one because it's a 30 minute sermon and uh, we, we do the, what we do. We stop a lot. We talk a lot um, to combat the issues, but it'll be very helpful if you just hang in there with us, please. And because uh, the more people can stand up together against this evil, yes, um, the better. And we can, Again, we got a light Springfield on fire with the true gospel. The Springfield needs the true gospel. I don't care how many churches you see. That doesn't mean squat. It's the people that you see speaking the truth, being the pillar and buttresses of the truth. But that implies that there is actual truth that we can know and articulate. And it's not just man's interpretation. It's what God has said. So I'll start it here. We're going to start this sermon. Um, at the uh, 123 mark, kind of getting off of the little icebreakers and getting right into the subject material. And then I want us to focus on this teacher, Galileo, who challenged the anti-science church folks. And this is an anti-history person who is not going to do the homework and explain to you that, yes, there was an ecclesiocracy at the time. But it wasn't the church that actually did the whole teaching thing. It was scientists and the whole uh, earth and everything going around the earth. Heliocentric. Yeah, that, that model was around way before Christ. Yeah, the heliocentric model actually was, according to 
the Encyclopedia Britannica, so we're sourcing this, was actually known earlier by Greek scientist and a mathematician named Hippocrates in 50 BCE, that's 50 BC, but they culminated in an accurate perspective model by Ptolemy. Now, who is Ptolemy? Well, Ptolemy, the one who made it famous, actually is an Egyptian astronomer, mathematician, and geographer. He adopted this idea around 200 AD. So, just a little astronomy lesson. I did learn this in astronomy when I was at SBU. The heliocentric model was the model that scientists Scientist. dealt with, okay, not so, just yeah. European and Roman scientists, but scientists all over the world held to. Yeah, and I want to make sure that you are hearing us correctly, because here's the problem of today. Just words are used. Science. It's science. No, we're saying scientists who have bias who have an a priori worldview, which they examine all things and call it evidence. We're saying there were scientists back in the day. It wasn't science. Science was not the problem. It was the people. And again, it was scientists of the day who utilized this model, who taught this model. And then you get somebody that's going to then take, well, our experience first. Well, let's open up the book. Oops, sorry about that little sound issue here. But yeah, let's open up the book and see if they're correct. And they go, well, the earth is fixed, the Bible says, so it doesn't go against our Bible. So I guess it must be true. So Okay, so we have an ecclesiocracy too. But again, we've talked about this on the show before. There was no papal bull. There was no ex-cathedra pope sitting in the chair saying this is the interpretation of the church on this issue. And so please, Phil, do your work and tell your people the truth instead of just grabbing onto a, uh, you know, you've heard it said, and this is what Jesus actually did. He didn't change anything about the Bible. He just goes, you've heard it was said because they messed it up, but it was written. And I tell you, because remember, Jesus didn't give his own words. He gave the words of the Father, and we'll get more into that. So the Christian but, yeah. guy who picked it up, the Christian scientist, he was a Christian and a scientist. Nicholas of Cusa in 1444 was the one who adopted the model that Copernicus, Gal excuse me, Galileo argued against. So just to make it very clear, the church didn't actually write it into where they were until the 1440s. It was non-Christian scientists who held this, adopted it, created it. And what happened was Christians read it into the text of Scripture, not that they exegeted Scripture to allow it to occur. The same thing happened with slavery. Mm -hmm. People tried to defend it, not by exegeting Scripture, but by proof-texting. Phil, you cannot have a problem with proof texting because you're going to do it here in this sermon, which I don't even think deserves to be called a sermon, this little lecture. Yeah, it's talking on stage in front of people on a Sunday morning just so that you can ape Christianity for your own benefit. So that's, that's the problem. So again, stop accusing the other side of exactly what you are doing. That is a classic, um, I'm not going to use the M word, but it's a classic uh, uh, way to get things done. And I don't know what that beeping is. Me either. It's done. <laughs> okay. Whatever is done is done. So anyway, but yeah, it's a classic uh, 
just a fallacy. You know, you're just trying to charge the other side with what you're doing just to maybe uh, make the other side feel crazy or something like that. I think that's called gaslighting. The, the other whatever. thing you want to remind yourself is that science is not a monolith, right? Yeah. When you say science, that's not a monolith. There are multiple scientists. In fact, one of the keys of science is that you disagree, that you engage, that you question presuppositions, that you, again, question the paradigm. There was a paradigm shift in the understanding of science at the time, but there is not a paradigm shift that is necessary anymore. What happened was, again, Christians read into the text of Scripture what they wanted it to say. That's going to be something that you'll see going on here as you deal with this. Wow. We're ready to hit play. Okay. When he taught that the earth revolved around the sun, so it wasn't stationary, instead of what the church taught, which was that the sun revolved around the earth. Again, we just dealt with it. It's the science of the day. The church this, isn't a monolith yeah. either, by the way. Because, yeah. wait a second, wasn't Galileo part of the church because he was a Christian? Yeah. I mean, just going to throw that out there. Yeah, and we got to get past this thing and equivocating the church with people now. Remember, we're there. There's Protestants for a reason. Um, you know, there was a schism in weight anyway because people did disagree. You have a pope, and then you have the Eastern Church that had a schism, so they can't say we've never had a schism. You can't do the whole Mormon thing. We've never had a schism. Yes, you have, and you just have to admit it and stuff like that. So, you know, there's no monolith here. There were people that questioned, and yeah, there was a ecclesiocracy where there were, you better recant or get burnt at the stake, right? Because of the ecclesiocracy, and that is wrong. The priest cannot be the king. The king can't be the priest, and that was totally wrong. And you know how I know that? Right there. It's in here to not do that, so... Um, but yeah, again, I just want to reiterate what he is saying is he's, 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 he's giving you a false history lesson. Yes. Because the interpretation of scripture was that the earth does not move. Well, there was a clash, obviously, between the church and science. And honestly, after this event, church folks have been skeptical of science ever since. Way to divide the church, sir. <laughs> That's the problem. Way to go, here's your pro-science, here's your anti-science. Anti-sciences are bad. Treat them like poop is basically what you're doing there with your actions. Not bear with them in love, but treat them like dogs. Which is, by the way, one reason why the number of people in the United States who are identifying as Christians is just falling off the cliff. False. No, it's because you are taking out their foundation and saying it's okay. They're not getting struck by lightning because, you know, it's all about the feels and experience. And they're going, well, I'm still living and I don't believe this stuff. Might as well. It's actually uh, what you're doing, Phil. And for some reason, I don't know why you still want to deal with Jesus Christ anyway, but you're, you're on your way, keep on going. And I predict that you'll just be like, yeah, this whole thing, 
we're just a social club now doing social justice and yeah, when it, whenever that happens, that's probably when Christians get uh, get killed. Well, when you go to the venue's website, they basically say, "Well, we want to live like Jesus. We want to we want to work off the teachings of Jesus." Well, how do you get to the teachings of Jesus? Scripture itself. So you've knocked out your foundation from the very beginning because you don't see Scripture as an authority, and therefore you have nothing to proclaim about Jesus with any valid or sound assertiveness, and that's the major problem. And you're going to see that as a very clear contradiction it's a juxtaposition one side against the other and anyone who's thinking would see it as that yeah and i predict because of the sermon and and the sermon we'll see later that he says you basically you can have a christianity without the bible um and i think he's setting up his church to finally throw it out to where we won't have sermons like this where he's cherry picking scriptures it won't be needed He'll just go to Socrates. He'll go to Plato. He'll go to Aristotle. He'll Marcus go to Marcus Aurelius. Probably not um, Marcus Aurelius. Yeah. But why not? Uh, you know, why Marilyn Manson probably said something pretty fun once. You know, why not him? I mean, we're all just people saying things, and we like sometimes what people say. So tragic. But this teacher Galileo said this: "You cannot teach people anything." He speaks from experience. He tried to teach the Pope. You can only help them discover it in themselves. Galileo was not just a teacher, a scientist. Galileo was a mystic. And I don't... Uh, Pelagian, maybe? Freak out just like over that Phil. word, mystic. Father Rohr gives a really good definition. No, he uses Father Richard Rohr. Rohr. Yeah, he uses Enneagram. Rohr here. Yeah, Enneagram. Mm -hmm. We've talked about that too. So that's it's a great uh, great authority here. So he's getting he's getting a lot of authority going on here. Like a mystic and mysticism. A mystic is one who has moved from mere belief or belonging systems to an actual inner experience of God. The religious world and the, the religious culture in which I was raised believed in a religious system that there was a set of beliefs that I had to adhere to and that I then belonged to a group of people who held those same uh, religious beliefs. So the criticism there is that if there is an orthodoxy within any religious system, they are being exclusive and that is wrong. So yeah. just so you know, he has now created a religious system or critiqued the idea that any type of bounds or defining barriers within any system is wrong. But by doing that, he's only boxed himself back into another system. Mm -hmm. Because and the system Dave and I... Dave and I came to venues and we said, like, he's going to say that we have this teacher within us. And we go, well, the teacher teaches us this, which contradicts you. Who's right. And how do we judge it? Yes. And he has no foundation, but is he going to include us anyway, without treating us with disdain in his heart, contempt in his heart for us? Are we included into that? And he has to tolerate us heckling him on Sundays when we go because we believe he's wrong because the teacher taught us something that contradicts him. I mean, that's where we're getting. This is what, this is relativism and it's going to totally, I mean, we're here to warn. We can't do anything about the venues, but we're here to warn because you guys are going to blow yourselves up. You're going to dig your own. You're going to dig a hole for your enemies. 
and you're going to fall into it. So, so let's think about walk. it like this. Here's one of the issues. What has just been said, right, is it is bad to put any type of barriers around your group. I guarantee that they do not allow that to be the case when it comes to who takes care of their kids. I guarantee you a sexual offender who walks into their building will not be allowed to work with the children. Well, that's mean and that's problematic. How about a pedophile? Will you allow a pedophile to work with your kids? No, you won't. Well, you've got created an orthodoxy that now says our religious system will not allow those pedophiles to work with the kids. Mm -hmm. See how well that works. Mm -hmm. Held on to that system of beliefs. But the truth of the matter is, in my life as it is today, a mystic is a person who has a consciousness of the union with God. Stop right there. Two issues. Number one, do you see consciousness of the union with God? Who is God in that system? What type of God are they talking about? What does it mean to have union with that God? Again, these are very vague and arbitrary terms that he's throwing up to identify mysticism. So yeah. when he says it's good to be a mystic, because that's the assertion that's coming off here. It's good to be a mystic. Mystic means that you have a consciousness of your union with God. What God, what does it mean to be conscious of your union with God? Because you can be conscious of something and disagree with it. Do you mm -hmm. see? Mm -hmm. And you can rebel against it. And Christians would actually say everyone has a consciousness of their covenant with God in Adam or in Christ. Christ. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, the word mystic and the word mystery are so closely related in the, the Greek language. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 1.27 that I wanted to, or God wanted to make known to them, the Gentile people, the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ is in you. And it's called exegesis time. <laughs> so is Paul talking to everyone everywhere in the world without any sort of distinction whatsoever? The reality is when Paul is writing his letter to the church at Colossae, he's speaking to the regenerate church. To the saints in Christ at Colossae who are faithful brothers, remember, faithful by what standard? Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So God so, chose to make known among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may be pres present everyone mature in Christ. Here's the issue. He can only, Paul, can only write about the mystery of the wisdom of Christ to those who are mature in Christ. So when he's talking about this mystery, what it means, he is stating very clearly that there is an insight into the revelation that God has given freely among the nations. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And it's, you know, Colossians 2, you want to talk about it. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy 
and empty deceit based on human tradition. I understand that you're saying that the Bible is human tradition. Well, if that's true, yours is too, and we can do a Tokoku or Tokoku thing. We can sit here back and forth. Or the presupposition that this is the inerrant, authoritative, clear, sufficient word of God is it has to be the presupposition of all predication or else we can't know anything and you can't know Christ is in you, which is exactly the, pr- the problem that, you know, you demonstrate whenever you don't answer my questions about how do you know that Christ is in you? Cause you don't. And you admit it in this. How does that anyone you know, nothing. know? So, yeah. Which scripture answers yeah. by the way. Yeah. And that is your hope of glory. That word mystery on the verse is the very same Greek word from that Greek root as mystic. A mystic is one who understands or not really understands it, but at least experiences that awareness that Christ is in me. That there is a union with God. This is not just a set of beliefs. But this is an experience of an awareness of a union with God. And when I am aware of a union with God and that Christ is in me. Okay, Okay, so basically you woke up one morning with no categories. Let's, Let's go to enlightenment philosophy here. You have no mental categories at all. Christ, Bible, God, I whatever. You just wake up one morning and... I'm aware that I'm in Christ. Didn't need the Bible. Didn't need anybody telling me anything. I just had it. By what standard do you know that it's Christ? Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two, what does that union mean? Yeah. Is that a negative or is that a positive? You don't know because you have nowhere to go. Just because you feel good, you can take drugs to feel good and say, oh, I have a physical Feeling that doesn't mean that you have union with Christ. Just because you feel good or feel bad doesn't mean that you have a union with Christ. When Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, when Paul says that he wants to know Christ, he is saying he wants to have a union with Christ, a deeper union with Christ, and he can measure that against something that is not the correct union with Christ. Yeah. Yeah. There's a standard. Let me hear this is kind of acting funny here. I'm also aware that there is a teacher in me. And how do you know that? And we're going to have some fun from here on out. Jesus said this to his disciples. Where, where did he say it? And how do you know he said it to his disciples? Right before he was crucified, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He quotes scripture. Jesus' words are written down in here. But no, wait a second, wait a second. No, 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 no. Was that Mark, Luke, or John? And that was a man that wrote what he, maybe he, maybe he wrote it down. Maybe it was somebody else that wrote, maybe it wasn't Mark, Luke, or John at all or or Matt like that's the thing is do you know what is written down here that Jesus said is what Jesus said the question is what objective attributes 
lead you to believe that Jesus objectively stated these things to his disciples and that they were recorded accurately and handed down accurately. If you reject scripture because it has no authority, why are you turning to this as if Jesus actually objectively said it? And Jesus has the right to have an objective authority over anyone. Further, just case in point here, who is Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples. So in order to actually exegete this passage correctly, you need to explore the context in which he actually says it and not just assert to everyone at the venues, this now applies to you in the way that I wanted to apply to you. You see yeah. the problem? That's mm -hmm. where he's making a massive hermeneutical tool. And I'll say the same thing now that I told him in the coffee shop. You need to put your diploma from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in an envelope and send it back and ask them for a refund. Mm -hmm. Especially for your exegesis class. Yeah. You all that I said to you. Now this spirit is a teacher in only if Jesus said, objectively said what he said, and that actually happened. And it's actually true. Again, you are going to the scripture now, and this is what I pointed out. You're treating this scripture as though it is authoritative and inerrant. You said, I did not use those words. Guess what? You don't have to use words when your actions demonstrate, well, this has to be true. This has to be authoritative. It can't have an error here in what I just quoted for that to be true. And then to say that I know because of the scriptures, right? You said, even though he deleted it, he said he knew, like part of his knowing is from the scriptures. I'm well, sorry. Again, you if can't, you... If, you, if you can't trust the reliability of them, you can't say that they're without error, then how do you know what Jesus just said is without error? And, you know, it's not authoritative. So again, then knowledge is destroyed he's pandering to the people at the venues in a pejorative manner. And unfortunately, I don't think many of them are actually seeing this, yeah. right? When you state that scripture, because he's going to go on to say, state that the spirit has greater authority than scripture. Here's the problem. Jesus in this exact verse is saying that it's the Holy spirit that will bring this to your recollection. Almost every theologian that I have read on this is saying, ah, He's giving them the power to remember, therefore the Holy Spirit, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, as it says in, in Peter 1.21, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit carried men along to write this. It's very clear. It's God-breathed. So the Holy Spirit that Jesus has promised, the helper, is now going to give them remembrance so that they can teach these things. How did they teach these things? If you have any, again, historical understanding of the Gospel of Mark, it's Peter's preaching that John Mark is writing basically verbatim so that he can Give that to people so they will understand what Jesus said. So what you're trying to do is parcel out already the Holy Spirit and Jesus, making them different than one another. Jesus has the authority. It's in Scripture. You cannot separate God's Word from God's character. It's impossible yeah. to do that. Just like, you know, like you say words. They're bound to you. You said them, but they're bound to who you are too. So you can't create the dichotomy between 
God or Jesus and his authority and his words. He said something, it was written down for us. So you can't make the dichotomy between the Bible and Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is going to give them remembrance, but that's not the only thing that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit being able to do in what's called the farewell discourse. In fact, Christ is very clear in John 16, verses 8 to 11, that the Holy Spirit also is going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So the same Holy Spirit that is going to give them remembrance of what Jesus said and inspire them to write these words is also going to convict the world of sin. Mm-hmm. Well, how is he going to do that? And it's not convict the world of how you put it on your baptism page of sin. There's no quotes around sin in scripture in which your church, you leading your church on their website, what the most, I don't know, it's so like, it's so wrong to put quotes around the word sin. We have sinned. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Joel Osteen. That's the problem. But no, no, the, the spirit is convicting the world of sin. The spirit is judging two things that you don't want to talk about from your little table. You. Jesus, prior to this, said that in the same theme, these words. Nisi, I left my tea over there. Thank you. Yes. He had, uh, he had, Nisi, go get him his tea. Mary got his tea. Thank you, ma'am. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you, oh, thanks. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. The word helper is the Greek word paraclete. It means somebody that comes alongside of you. There's a paraclete sitting on the front row down here, uh, John Appaquist, who is an attorney. And that's really what the word was, an advocate. An attorney is someone who advocates for you, stands beside you in a court, and defends you, unless you're on the other side. John, you said something earlier about that. Well, yeah. So here's, again, jumping back to the reality of the helper that Jesus is talking about. That same paraclete is the one who convicts of sin, therefore corrects, therefore causes a person to have serious conviction concerning sin in their lives. One of the ways that you know you have the Holy Spirit is because it convicts you of sin in your life. Mm. And therefore, when he talks about it as the paraclete, the helper, it's advocating for something. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is advocating against you to bring you to a grief over sin in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. I love the Holy Spirit who defends me from accusations that I'm not good. It's actually Christ that is the de- defense. The Spirit seals, the Spirit applies everything of Christ to you if you are in Christ. But it's Jesus who's going to be the judge. It is Jesus that gives you his clothing for your rags. He's the one right now up in heaven 
interceding for his people. And so that, so the thing is, is like, you got your, you really, I don't even like, this is the question. Are you a Trinitarian or a Unitarian or are those, again, I've asked this won't question. Won't give a clear answer, answer to that, by the way. Not, won't give a clear, won't give an answer to it. That's what it is. That's the state of affairs. He won't give an answer to it. But so now you've got your, you, like, it's just so blurred. God is blurry here. So he's not even clear anywhere except for where I guess it's clear in your head, whatever God you're serving, but it's just not this, the God that sent, you know, the father that sent the son who then gave the spirit to who inspired people. the Holy scripture. Yeah. Not good enough. And I'm not accepted. The Holy spirit comes and defends, defends me of that. Anyway, to be with, no, you're given the spirit because you're not enough because your works are dumb. Your works cannot buy you entrance. It's only Jesus because of his work that we can boldly approach the throne. Thank you, Jesus. The issue is what he's saying that the Holy spirit does in his life in defending him is not anything within the text. There is nothing that says the helper is coming so that you would feel good about yourself. Actually, very interesting, and I preached through this text uh, eight years ago, right? So this is a little bit uh, some of the lexicons that I dealt with and some of the language, but Paraclete sets up the courtroom scene. So according to uh, one of the guys that we really loved, uh, Hobbes, in his commentary, he talks about one of the things that one of the things that Christ is working towards here is demonstrating that the disciples are going to have to testify. In fact, even within this text, he says, when they drag you before people, don't worry about what you're going to say, because I'm going to speak for you. The Holy Spirit is going to speak for you. It's going to give you the words to say. Yeah. So his application of the paraclete defending him against not feeling good enough is nowhere in the text. It's no. foreign to the text. What Christ is saying is the mission that I have come to speak on the behalf of the Father is coming to you. The Holy Spirit is the one who will be guiding you in all truth, and the Holy Spirit is the one who will advocate not as a means to make you feel good, but as a means to push forward with the gospel. When yeah. he talks about how the world will hate you because it hated me, Jesus makes it very clear here that the one that the Father is going to send, in verse 26 of chapter 15, right? Mm -hmm. But when the Helper comes, again, that term there is paraclete, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, mm, that's an interesting thing, it's the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father. He will, what does it say that he'll do? Bear witness about mm -hmm. me. Now here's the issue. Notice that Phil is saying the Holy spirit is bearing witness about him. Yeah. About him being okay. About him having no problems at all. Just, you know, I guess, uh, as Trump would say, I never sinned. I just, I, you know, I, I would ask Jesus for forgiveness if I ever sinned, but I, yeah, you know, I just never, I've never sinned. That's, you know, that's a Trump saying. So sounds, you know, and I'm, I'm doing this tongue in cheek for a purpose. Cause I know, I know the hatred that people, I would say like Phil don't like Trump, but you're talking like him mm -hmm. <laughs> when you're doing this, you have the same ego, you have the same, same problem. So what are you going to do about it? 
That's the big deal. You come to Christ and you repent. Just the Holy Spirit's advocation as the paraclete is not about you. It's about Christ. Mm-hmm. Be with you forever. That was free. Even the spirit of truth. That's interesting. The spirit of truth is in you. Now, no, wait, the world, wait, it's oh. not in everybody. Yeah. Is it in everybody? Because everybody contradicts each other all the time. So if that's the thing, then it can't be the spirit of truth because there's no truth in all these contradictions. So who gets to be the one to determine who's got the truth, who doesn't? Again, there, there's a standard or else you're complete. Again, you're destroying the world in which you, li- you, you move in when you're talking like this. Well, here's the deal, by the way. So one of the things that Phil is going to do here a little bit later is he's going to go to Acts 10 and he's going to assert that there's a contradiction. So here's one of the things that, that Peter says very clearly in this. Um, in Acts chapter 10, verse 47, after dealing with Cornelius and the Gentiles, he says, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So there are people who don't have the Holy Spirit. In order for Peter to say they've received the Holy Spirit as we have, that meant that they were, the Holy Spirit wasn't in them at a time. So in order for you to apply any of the terminology regarding the Holy Spirit to an individual, they have to have received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit just doesn't reside in everybody fiat. Mm-hmm. Or cannot receive. Interesting. Some people can't receive this. Why? Well, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now, you know Interesting him, for he dwells with you. For a guy. Be- Two things. If he's being consistent, he just destroyed universalism. He just destroyed universalism. Is he willing to recognize that? Yeah. Phil, are you a universalist? Okay. You won't answer that either. If you are not a if you are a not a universalist, then you really need to make that clear. If you are a universalist, you should probably get a sharpie and black this out. Your statements make no sense that there are people who cannot receive it. Further, just goes on to divine election and the reality that God chooses who he wants to choose for salvation, by the way. Yeah. In you. That word translated see up there doesn't mean simply that I see this bar of chocolate. There's another Greek word called blepo for that. This is a Greek word that means I don't just see it, but I break it off and I experience it. Oh my gosh. That's better than seeing, isn't it? I'd much rather taste it than just see it. And it's really mean of me that you see it and I'm not letting you taste it. (laughs) But that's just the way it is. (laughs) So you get the idea? There are some people who see Jesus, who see the Spirit, who see nature, who see the presence of God, but for whatever reason, they're not tasting that. They're not experiencing that. And I would like to know, Phil, why? Why? I want you to give me the reason. Instead of just saying, for whatever reason, I want you to give me the reason. I want you to give your people the reason, because that's going to be probably 
where you get exposed when you give that reason, but you're not going to give the reason. I'm not going to speculate what that reason is. I would like to know, honestly. They're not aware of that. They're not aware. Hmm. So Jesus is saying this, by the way, all men know Mm -hmm. God. All men know. Oh, but that passage isn't inspired and inerrant. So I'm not. Uh, Thank you for the arbitrariness that you can have. Yeah. Teacher is in you. I like this teacher. This teacher put a picture of himself on the window of his office door. So people, as they glance in without really paying attention, will think that the teacher is in his office. You know what Jesus is saying to you is that if you look in your heart, you'll see that there's a teacher in there. So Jesus is saying, if you you look in your heart here in John 14, Jesus is saying, if everyone looks in their heart, they'll see a teacher there. I agree. You'll see a teacher who hates God. Or you'll see the Holy Spirit of Scripture. Yeah, because uh, yeah, he says that the, you know, the words that you say, what comes out of your mouth, exposes what's in your heart. So where, and then wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is. So seems like... Uh, your heart is in yourself and your treasure is yourself. And I don't think you really treasure Christ because uh, you have to treasure him above yourself. And Christ is more than you, better than you. And just like Peter, whenever he finally realized something about Christ after the whole fish thing, he said, get away from me. He was telling Jesus, you're too holy for me. I am nothing. He said, get away. That's the holiness of Jesus Christ. His, his holiness should push us away, but that's the beauty of Christ. He invites us to be with him. That's the gospel. But we, would, we should recognize in Christ, he is too holy for us. We are so unholy, and that is what you, Phil, are unwilling to deal with. You are resisting the spirit of conviction. You are resisting the spirit of judgment and creating this blue Aladdin's Robin Williams speaking Holy Spirit that you can talk to in the corner of your room. Because really you can't explain the dualism here. So then you're left with material. So he has to exist. Well, here's the deal. (laughs) Again, if he's going to play the game of everyone has a spirit teacher in them, which is interesting because now he's conflated something here. If you, if you've, this is like the third or fourth time I've listened to this sermon He has taken the term paraclete helper and he has made it synonymous with teacher. Yeah. Well, the really interesting thing is that in 1 John uh, chapter 4, John records this, actually teaches this reality about spirits. Remember, we've been told... That paraclete and teacher are one and the same. That's what he's implying here, right, by his teaching. Then saying that every one of you has a teacher in you. John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, yeah, I'll just read it. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are from God. Because many false prophets have... uh, gone out into the world. And this is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come 
in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Bingo. Two key pieces there. Number one, yeah, there are spirits. Oh, there are teachers and people. What do you do with those teachers? Well, you test them. Mm -hmm. What do you test them against? What scripture has recorded regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, John is writing to some type of a pre-Gnosticism here, but it still has an application that's very real to the believer today. How do you know if the spirits that are in you, the spirits that are teaching you, are from Christ or not? You test them against the revelation of God about who Jesus objectively is. Mm-hmm. The Spirit. John wrote a letter. It's in the last latter part of the Christian scripture, and he says, as for you, the anointing, now that word anointing is the very same Greek word as Christ. First John 2, 27. Some of you have been Christized. That's what it means. For you, those have been, who have been Christized, you received from him. He Wait a second, yeah, so listen, listen to this. What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us eternal life. I have written, I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. There's a test. There's stuff written down, and I'm sorry to tell you this. Go to John 17, same author. So let's go to John 17, and this is a big issue. If we're talking about, you know, John wrote these things. They were for a person. He makes it clear that he wrote, John is saying he wrote these things. Yeah. And so we go to John 17. And we get to Jesus's high priestly prayer. And he says, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come to glorify your son so that the son may glorify you since you give him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life that you may know that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. I revealed your name to the people you gave me, the disciples, from the world, and they are yours, and you gave them to me, and you have kept their, and they have kept your word. So remember, this is not Jesus' word, this is the Father's word. Now they know that the, everything that you have given me is from you. Because I have given them the words you gave me, they have received them and have made known for certain that I have come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. All right, now let's just skip down 
to verse 20. So he's not praying for the whole world. He's praying for his disciples. And then he turns and says, I pray not only for these disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. And what did we just see John say? I have written these things. So really, in a sense, I'm not believing because Jesus spoke the words himself by his own will. I believe because it's the Father's word that he gave to the Son to speak to the people that God chose out of the world to give to him to then believe because of their word, and that is what I'm doing whenever I read the letter, 1 John, 2 John, John, <laughs> you know, whatever, whoever, whoever it is that was an apostle, this is apostolic teaching. I believe because of their word, just like Paul says in Romans 10, that how do we, they know without a preacher? How do they call upon one they don't know without the preacher? So we need teachers, we need preachers, and then we get to Ephesians, which he ends and up getting there, and every one of them is important. external teacher preachers, I mean, yeah. go, again, going to Romans uh, 10, you and I had talked about this. It's very clear. here. What, what Phil is trying to contend is that you don't need a teacher because you have the teacher inside of you. But then I'm going to point to all these external ones, but, you know, don't, don't mind them. I'm just trying to get you somewhere to destroy it, to then captivate you in a world system that this book tells you not to trust. And in Romans 10, verse 14, it makes it exceptionally clear. How will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Oh, someone needs to tell them. According to Scripture... This spirit inside you, which you would have to test against scripture to know whether it was true, has to be spoken to an individual in order for them to know it. Otherwise, they are without hope. Mm -hmm. Mains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his Christing teaches you about all things, and as that Christing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught you, remain in him. Now, That's did you notice the, you did not did you notice yeah. as he was speaking the interpolations that he was putting into the text? Yeah, because it doesn't say that. Exactly. It doesn't, it, say, it doesn't say that no one needs a teacher. Now, I know where he's grabbing it from, and it's something that is said in Scripture, but it's because you don't like Thess Thessalonians. You know, you're already doing these things. You don't need this written to you, but I'm re I'm re basically he's writing Thess Thessalonians to say, continue, do this more. You're already doing it. Keep on going. You're, you're doing well, but I didn't have to write these things to you again. So they have been taught once they're doing well with what the teaching again, remember what he says here in John, what we just went through. It's already been written. Um, it, we've already dealt with this. And, and so whenever you get into the context of Thessalonians, it's like, continue. I've already told you. I've already taught you. You're doing well, but I wanted to write. I've heard about your faith. I'm rejoicing. You are my crown of glory in heaven. 
It's awesome to see what's going on. And I want to encourage you to keep on going because I'm your spiritual father and you're my spiritual son and I love you and I want to encourage you. That's what he's doing with it. And so that's what he's taking and then putting into this for his agenda. But then again, that's no better than the New World Translation or any sort of Mormonism And what materials. he's doing is asserting without any evidence that every person has the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth within them. Yeah. So what he's done is made a presupposition upon which he's building this structure, but there is no foundation for asserting that everybody has the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth inside of them. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. To teach you. Well, then, Philip, why in the world am I here today? Why are you up there on that platform? I'm asking you the same question. Why are you there? Just, just stop. Just, they can have a Christianity without the Bible. They can have a Christianity without you. They can have a Christianity without a building and getting together on a Sunday. They can have a Christianity without going to soup kitchens and acting like Freemasons, <laughs> basically. Um, basically, you get rid of, if you can say you have Christianity without the Bible, we can have Christianity without any, with, without doing anything. We can just sit on our butts and do nothing and eat chips all day because we're making this stuff up and being arbitrary. So I'm just going to be arbitrary in such a way that I'm, I'm, I'm massaging myself mentally to be able to sit in a chair and eat potato chips all day and just say, Jesus would do it. He was always at a meal. He liked to eat. So I'm being like, Jesus, I'm eating. I think I just quoted myself out of a job. I wish you would. So what does it mean that you don't have, you don't need anyone to teach you? And how does that square with what? that's not what it says. No. This is why you can't cherry pick scripture. This is why you allow scripture to interpret scripture and to synthesize itself in one fundamental voice because it has one fundamental author. Yeah. And so like, again, this gets into the messianic secret secret sort of idea. Um, and you get into the, the, the new covenant being announced in the old Testament where it says that, you know, you will teach no, nobody will teach his neighbor to know God for they will all know me because I will teach them. Well, that sounds like I'm saying what Phil's saying, but, um, that's the thing though. You get into what Jesus did and Jesus never, you know, like there is that sort of apologetic thing we got to do. Well, Jesus didn't come right out and just say, you know, I am, Yahweh, the Lord God, and he's not like that. No, he's, if you look at the dynamic of the gospels, Jesus is going, do you believe in me? I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to poison the well. I want to talk to you and I want to see what my father is doing in you to see if you come to me or not. That's so it's not necessarily like Hmm. Jesus trying to keep things away, but yeah. So interesting. Just to looking at some cross-reference notes so Hebrews 8 is what you were paraphrasing there, yeah. right? Hebrews eight eleven, and they shall not teach each other his neighbor and each other his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. It cross-references in my Bible, 1 John 2, 27. Hmm. That's actually a quotation of Isaiah 54, yeah. 13. Yeah. Interesting, sir. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing, but, you know, it's one of those things that, Again, and and then again, when it comes to then Christianity, then Christ does give us a standard by which to judge those fruits. He says a bad tree bears bad fruit and a good tree. So we're talking about objective truth here. We're talking about an objective standard. 
yeah, we're not to judge one another as hypocrites. If you're being a hypocrite and I'm being a hypocrite, yeah, we can point each other all day and address each other's by our own standards and how we contradict what we say all the time. But he also tells us to judge with right, with righteousness. Yes. What is righteous? God's law. What God judge has said. Right what has been written in the past for our instruction. Again, Jesus appeals to the scriptures and the scales fall off of people's eyes. Uh, Paul says, according to the scriptures, this is the gospel. There's nothing, there's, there's tons of appeal to scriptures, which is the Old Testament scriptures. And then you get to Peter calling Paul's, what he's writing, scriptures. I mean, I, that, I, I can't get more simple than that. But, you know, then again, the, the heart of the matter is, are you for the whole Christ or not? I'm for the whole Christ here. You're not for the whole Christ, and we're again doing this as a warning. You will die in your sins. You will have no excuse, and you will end up going, but Jesus, didn't we go to cross lines and hand out clothes in your name? Jesus, did not we go downtown and get all the drunk people around, sober them up, and make them feel better? Didn't we do this? And he's going to say, I, did not, I never knew you. Are you worried about that? Do you think about that? That's what Dave and I are here for. Yeah, we're passionate. People can call us mean all day. I don't care. But we are here as a warning, and we would like to have an actual, real public discussion, and it's been on the table. Paul says in Ephesians that Christ gave some to be apostles, some prophets, and he gave teachers. If I have a teacher in me, why do I need a teacher outside of me? Good question. Yeah, here. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know. The scriptures tell us why? Again, we just did it. The scriptures gave us the clear reason why we need teachers. Because people and have you're to unwilling, hear And you are unwilling to give them the truth and just to feign this false humility. I don't know why we need teachers. Well, and here's the deal. He has the opportunity to actually be the preacher that Romans 10 is talking about, but rather he is perpetuating a lie that he cannot back, which is the reality that no, not everyone is filled with the spirit of truth. You cannot come to that conclusion from scripture at all. So you have to reach, and this is what you're doing and telling other people to do, and that is, well, reach with your feelings. And that must be the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. The unaccountable feelings. Oh yeah, the force. I do know this, that maybe, maybe, maybe we need teachers who teach us the things of Christ in the spirit of Christ, as I think of spirituality teachers. Okay. You, I mean, I would agree that we need to, people to teach us about Jesus. That's what we read in Romans. And you could have actually utilized that scripture if you wanted to. It's at your disposal. But then again, that totally just destroys everything you just said before this moment. So now you say you don't know, and then you bring your audience in. Well, let's just speculate. Let's... Let's put the scriptures aside now, even though I totally have tons of references. I have totally tons to give you. If, and there's, there's a whole bunch left, too, yeah. by the way. But, um, but no, let's just speculate. I don't know. 
So let's just speculate what a teacher is for. And so this is whenever you're going to be be right, but be so wrong. You're going to have a right little thing here, but it's going to be clothed in just just horrible wrongness compared to the scriptures anyway. But then again, you don't care about those unless if you do care about those. I think that's what John is talking about. He's not talking about your biology teacher and your English teacher, but spiritual teachers. Maybe we don't need teachers who don't teach us the things of Christ. Well, maybe we don't need I'm teachers a, who teach us the things of Christ. Who don't teach us. I, maybe we don't need teachers who don't teach us the things of Christ. We don't need people to teach us about Christ. Put simply. Yeah. We don't need people to teach us about Christ. That runs into conflict with every last piece of the New Testament proclamation. Mm-hmm. The very first thing that Jesus did repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. If Jesus truly believed that, why did he not just tell John to shut up? John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. If that was true, why the heck did Jesus go to Matthew 28 and tell them to go and teach? Hmm. Oh, you're going to, he's going to utilize Matthew 28 here in a little while. Yeah. Completely undercuts everything that he said that this was kind of heretical, that you don't really trust this teacher within you because it's dangerous to trust your gut. Remember, there's the Holy Spirit, and then there is the Spirit. So the Spirit testifies with your spirit, right? So there's two spirits going on. Now he's conflated them. Don't trust yours. Don't trust you. There's a problem. There's a sin problem. But apparently your church doesn't know the whole story of Adam and Eve. And I guess, remember, Genesis 1 through 3, 1 through 11 didn't happen. Not real. And here's the other issue with this, okay? So he's asserting that everyone, I want you to follow the argument, asserts fiat, right? Just by fiat, his claim, in and of itself, everyone has a spirit of truth in them. Okay. He undercut that by noting that there are some people who won't receive that, but he never really unpacks what that means. So everyone has the Holy Spirit in them. That Spirit teaches them, we don't need people to teach us about Jesus, because the Spirit inside of you teaches everything, but there's no standard by which to measure, according to Phil, if that's really Jesus' Spirit. It just, it just, it just by is. brute fact, is. So then what you have is a complete, and he says, go with your gut, your gut. So is it the Holy Spirit or is it your gut? See, Jeremiah 17, 9, we, we know this verse. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? So you'll need to prove that it's not your heart telling you those things. And it's actually the spirit of truth, but you can't test that. Against anything. Yeah. Absolute utter autonomy. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I hope I'm not like You're just... Good. I was taught, maybe you all were too, that the primary source of truth was Scripture and that the Spirit would never contradict the Scripture. Actually, Jesus is the ultimate standard of truth. He's the one who claims to be, I am the truth. Yeah. He also says, sanctify the disciples by your truth. 
what is it that is truth? It's the Father's word that was given to him. And so the thing and is, we're talking about the Holy words. Spirit yeah. who was sent by the Father to guide into all truth and do what Jesus did, which was speak the truth, is the same one who inspired men. Second Peter one twenty one, Second Timothy three sixteen. Mm-hmm. Remember, we believe because of their word. Jesus prayed for it, and he's getting what he prayed for because that's you know he did the perfect will of God. So. You know, that's, but you know, those scriptures, put, put them aside because we don't do that. We just only deal with the ones that just say Christ in you because they make me feel good. Oh, really? You want to bet on that? I bet you a piece of chocolate on that. Oh, good. Well, if, I, if I will we're going to bet, Let, we, uh, yeah. let's take you up. Let, yeah, let's, let's, we weren't there, but does it apply? Bets require objective truth. Please, please post this on Facebook to him. By what standard are we going to judge what is a contradiction and what is not a contradiction? It has to be a transcendent, objective, absolute, invariant, immaterial principle. So, it has to be that so, kind of standard to be able to make a bet. Now, if you can't come up with that standard, I would advise you not to take the bet. So the if statement. You can, let us know what it is. The statement was this, and Phil, I, I hope that Phil gets to see this. I hope that you would take the time to listen to us. You have made a statement that Scripture is not the ultimate authority. And am, am I correct? Well, am I su- also summarizing that that the Scripture that the Holy Spirit will not contradict the Scriptures? He said that the Holy Spirit will not contradict the Scriptures. So, definition. Contradiction. And so what he is saying is that the Holy Spirit will contradict the scriptures. The log- in logic, a contradiction is defined as this. Two statements are contradictory. If both statements cannot be true at the same time, and both statements cannot be false at the same time, one statement is true, the other must be false, vice versa. Law of excluded middle. Exactly. So what you need to prove, Phil, is that a statement in Scripture cannot be contextualized or cannot be understood in such a way that it is true and the other one is true at the same time. The one statement has to be absolutely true. The other one has to be absolutely false. There is no way to rectify or reconcile the two statements being true or false at the same time. Did do, do you follow that? Mm-hmm. I would love to take you up on that piece of chocolate. Yeah, and let's publicly do it. Let's just unpack that a little bit. Please. I think that statement that the Spirit will never contradict the Scripture was said to accomplish at least two things. Number one to maintain that the scripture is the ultimate authority. And then it means that our experience is secondary to the spirit. So just why is that wrong? Why is that so bad? Just to put it out there. If Phil's statement is now true, if what he's saying is true, you have destroyed the triune God. Mm -hmm. You, You have destroyed the triune God. Here's the reality. 
God, it is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6, 18. Mm-hmm. God cannot lie. Titus 1, 2. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie. Okay. A contradiction would mean that if God said something and the Holy Spirit says, nah, not true. Scripture teaches that God is unchangeable, right? Immutable, right? So if you are proclaiming a God where there is a God who says something that is in contradiction with the other person within the one being that is God, you have now given us a non-biblical God. The God that you're advocating for is not the God of Scripture. Did you follow that? Yeah, yeah. and it'd be much like the God that he doesn't want to believe in in the Old Testament that has to wrap a little uh, you know, bow around his finger to remember something. Because what you're doing now is making God impotent and not all-knowing. Yes. Not all-powerful. Because you have to be the one who knows, who has the power and all that stuff. You are the, the reference point of all predication, not God. So again, you blame others for exactly what you're doing. You're being absurd and your people aren't catching it because you are a really good tool to dumb them down. And I know that there's people in your congregation that have more dignity than you are giving them. So let's examine those two statements. What about the the statement that the spirit will never contradict the scripture well, let's take a look at Deuteronomy in the uh, Hebrew scripture. And uh, the prior to that, verse 12, it says that if you follow the Lord, if you obey the Lord, then the Lord is going to open up the treasure house. The Lord will send you rain from heaven and your crops will grow. Everything will be great. You drop down to verse 24 and... Uh, if you don't follow the Lord, if you don't obey me, the Lord says, uh, man, I'm going to burn you up. You're going to be dry. You're not going to get any rain at all. Until huh. you're destroyed. in powder, powder and dust. And did that happen in the Old Testament? Did they rebel against God? Did God, did God not send the Amalekites and all the nations around them to push them into exile? And did Jesus, was he lying in Matthew 24 when he said that I'm going to come and basically do all these things? This temple will not be up anymore. It will be ground to dust, basically. And that's what happened in AD 70. Did that not happen? And so, yes, the truth is, is Israel was in covenant with God. God said, will you do these things? And the people agreed. They said, we will do all you say. And God set the terms, blessings and cursings in the covenant. That is true. And they kept on rebelling. They kept on putting idols on the high hills. 
They kept on sacrificing to them. They sacrificed their babies to Moloch. They did all that kind of stuff, and God was displeased. He was patient with them. He let them fill up the measure of wrath before. He didn't just flippantly just go crazy. It took a long time, took generations. But then he finally sent them into exile, sends them into exile again, and then destroys them. But then out comes the gospel out of that. But, you know, God, that, that is true. That is true. God said that. And so there's been this theology in the Christian world that if you're good, good things will happen to you. If you're bad, bad things will happen to you. And if you're going through a disaster in your life, then it must mean that you've, you're not following God. And what? tell me what's wrong by what standard and tell me what's wrong with that. Now, I, this is highly reductionistic and simplistic. Um, superstition is wrong. God gets rid of pagans. Superstition is wrong. So let's continue. Well, let me say this real quick because we've been really, Phil, I don't know if you're listening or if you're a member of the venues, I want you to hear very clearly from me. We totally are in agreement with Phil in regard to his very light-handed critique of the prosperity gospel here. Yeah. Because that's what he is alluding to. I wish that he would be more forceful and assertive in saying that this is an evil doctrine. Yeah. But he can't do that. Well, and that he would uh, not lump everybody together. Yes. As well. So again, we've you and me, Dave, have been lumped in with the Catholic Church. Yes. Now we're being lumped in with the prosperity gospel. And that's just fallacious. Not only is it ignorant to do that, it's, it's intentionally deceptive to say that Reformed Baptists, because that's where we are, that Reformed Baptists are prosperity gospel folks. No, we're not. Not even close. And it's going to be really funny because you're going to say God just loves and he doesn't do anything wrong to you. And the thing is, is you're going to forget here to go to the New Testament in Hebrews where it says, in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the shedding of your blood, and you have completely forgotten this world, this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. So in the New Testament era, God is still disciplining. God is still rebuking. He says, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure this hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are you are not legitimate. So if you're teaching that God doesn't discipline and that bad things don't happen at all at the hand of God to be his people, then you are teaching the prosperity gospel in a way. So again, stop accusing other people of exactly what you are doing. You cannot be this simplistic. You cannot be this reductionistic. But even in the New Testament era, God does rebuke. God does discipline. Now, it doesn't lead to judgment. It leads you to reconciliation, but it still hurts, as it says. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness 
and peace for those who have been, what? Trained by it. Because we are secondary. God is primary. So therefore, because of that, because of the truth, not what you're proposing, Phil, we can straighten our feeble arms and our weak knees. So again, you don't give them the New Testament here. You're just putting in the Old Testament, making God look horrible because you want that, that God to look horrible. But it's that God that sent Jesus, who gave the words to Jesus, who then gave it to the disciples, who then give it to us. That is the biblical order of things. He gave it to the prophets to give to Israel. I mean, that's, that's how God is, because God is the same. He's consistent. He does not lie. He does not change his mind. So we're giving the full gospel. You are just dancing, dancing, There is dancing. no gospel. There is no good news in this presentation. Have y'all ever been taught that? I don't have to raise your hand, but raise your heart. I certainly was. And it's still being taught a lot today. And it kind of works as a motivation, I guess. And I would say that people are teaching it as simplistically as you're putting it without any sort of biblical nuance, which you wouldn't do either. Um, They're wrong too. And they need to be called out just as equally as you. So you're not special, Phil. We're dealing with you because you're local, because you've got a lot of folks, because you're, you are making a splash with your works. It's seen, it's heard but you're feeding people for a day to kill them for eternity. eternity. So that's the reason why we're doing this. But you're, again, you're nothing special. You know, I hope, I, I mean, I hope you're not getting your ego pet by this, you know, but, but the thing is we're dealing with it that way. Kind of scares you into doing the right thing. But then how do I sync that with what Jesus says? He says, I want y'all to be like your father in heaven. So what's God like? Oh, I know what God's like. God is like, he will reward you if you're good. He'll punish you if you're bad. False. Here's the problem, Phil. You just quoted Christ, who said, be like your father in heaven. We've dealt with this before. Did Jesus really say that? Okay. If Jesus said that, he is presupposing that there is a standard and an understanding of the attributes of God as presented to the Jews he's speaking to, and that's found in the Old Testament. Yep. Oh, no? That's not what God's like? Now, God's a covenant-keeping Jesus God. Says- God's a covenant-keeping God. And when you deal with a covenant, you deal with the coveter, and the, again, the coveter makes promises if you keep it, He holds you to it, and those who are in the covenant also have rewards and consequences for breaking covenant. It's understood right at the beginning. Horrible covenant theology on your part, and you, again, have pandered to people and done so in a pejorative manner that's not only condescending, it's false. Mm -hmm. Since he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the righteous and the righteous. Whoa. And that's a contradiction, folks. That's a contradiction. No, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 
43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like, be children of your father in heaven. Let's see. For he causes the sun to rise on evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. So God's pr- providing. So we provide our enemies water, but they're still our enemies. We make the distinction. So our enemies actually don't have the spirit of Christ in them. There's distinctions. There's things that that we have that they don't have. There is an exclusionary thing here. It's an exclusive issue being a Christian. And the thing is, is what is the context of Matthew's or what is the context of the Sermon on the Mount is he's telling people not to be hypocrites. Again, not judging the right way, judging with your standards and being called out on your standards because you can't even follow your standards, but then judge by righteous standards, which are God's standards is what he'll end up getting to in the sermon. So it's, it's there. But again, whenever you don't take in the full context of things, you can say whatever you want. And if the people in the, in the, in, in the audience don't do the research either, but they just like you for you. They're going to defend you, and they're not going to look at the scriptures to find out what is true. They're not going to be Bereans, which, again, were commended for doing what? When Paul comes around, they could have experienced Jesus and Paul and been like, whoa, that's awesome. Paul's doing all this stuff. He's suffering all this stuff, but for the sake of Christ, and he's taking care of people, and he's a really nice guy and whatnot. But no, they still said, I'm going to examine everything he said by what? The scriptures, the grapha the Old Testament, to find out if it's true. So uh, I guess uh, being a Jew and being having your scriptures was a good thing. You, you, had to have, you had to have the scriptures. And then a new covenant comes along. You need new covenant spokesmen like the prophets. We got the apostles. Well, and again, so. the, the reality is, Phil, and we've talked about this. It's, it's in the book that I wrote. Christ is always speaking to the truthfulness of the Old Testament scriptures. So what you either have to do is state openly, which you need to, Jesus didn't really say that, or Jesus didn't know what he was talking about because he was just a, a Jew who had limited knowledge, which then actually means he's not God. Yeah. Not a Jesus is contradicting scripture. Not a contradiction at all. The teacher is contradicting scripture. Again, we just demonstrated that this does not meet the definition of contradiction. Two statements are contradictory if both statements cannot be true at the same time and both statements cannot be false at the same time. We just demonstrated that it can be true at the same time. Both statements can be true at the same time. You've now lied to your church because you didn't do your homework. There you go. Love that. (laughs) You didn't do your homework or you purposefully deceived, or you ignorantly asserted. Yeah. That say about the authority. Did the Holy Spirit guide you to say that, by the way? Did the Holy Spirit guide you to say that? Yeah, because the Holy Spirit that resides between Dave and I believe this. It leads us to this. We're not just believing a book and reading and then reasoning and then making syllogisms and arguments and stuff like that. No, I'm attracted to Christ's words that are written down that if this isn't, if I can't know from this what Jesus said, 
then I'm just making stuff up. And that's what you're doing. And that's what the world is doing. They're making stuff up to their own liking. And you have literally admitted your feels are the standard. So again, you're doing the wrong thing and then you're blaming the other side, but it's you who are the problem. You're the one that's going to be causing division. You're going to get, you're not going to get unity in this. It might, might be for a time because you're united in your rebellion and in your deconstruction. But once the deconstruction happens, then you're going to have a room full of incoherent particulars going, well, you told me the teacher and me, I can trust. And the teacher and me now turns against you. So why am I here? Why are you here? And then again, you set your own trap and it blows up in your face. Might take a generation. It's going to happen. You heard it here. We warned you. God will not hold us responsible. And that's what we're here for. Just like Ezekiel, he told us Ezekiel just to warn. We can't save you, but we can point you to where you can find salvation, which I think uh, we'll have to get to part two whenever we talk about that passage. Yeah. Because there is eternal life that we can find in the scriptures that was available to the Pharisees. And it wasn't a scripture problem. It was the Pharisees' heart problem that was the issue. It wasn't the scriptures because it was the scriptures that spoke of him, and they should have found it in their scriptures as along, along with everything else that he is the Christ. Just by reading the scriptures, they should have known it. But that's for next time. I think uh, we've gone way too long. How, and, I don't even know how long we've and, gone. Uh, yeah, I just know, but I I know I think we're that's only good, like about 15 minutes into yeah, that. 13 minutes and 40, <laughs> 41 seconds. We've got 22 minutes and 29 seconds left. Um, we will do a part two uh, next time. I want to make sure Dave we, gets we'll home. We'll be able to like break some is, of this one yeah, up. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we'll break this uh, one up because this is, again, um, I think what we're seeing with the venues again is like I, I, what I saw, I think, I, I think I saw an ad um, for a deconstruction class. So this is what's going on with Josh Harris. Um, this is going to be the next big thing that uh, hits a lot of churches, people deconstructing. Um, and it's, you know, we need to fight against this. We need to um, teach the truth. We need to warn. Um, we need to do our duty as uh, disciples of Jesus Christ who go and make disciples. We need and to deal with false teachings uh -huh. and call them out because what Phil is doing is what the progressive Christians are doing all over. And it is yeah. creeping into even conservative theological groups and it needs to be called out and dealt with. Yeah. So, but anyway, with that said, this is the Tag Gear Podcast. I'm Ray Ray. I'm Dan. And so leave.